Welcome to Future Proof, the marketing podcast from Said Business School, Oxford University, and Kantar, the data insights and consulting company. In each episode, we speak to industry leaders about the big issues in marketing, sharing evidence and inspiration for the future. I'm Jane Bloomfield. I'm Head of Business Development at Kantar. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Felipe Tomas, professor of marketing at Said Business School. And welcome to today's episode of Future Proof. And we have a great guest today in the form of James George, who's joining us from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Great to be with you guys this afternoon. Now, many of you will be familiar with the name Ellen MacArthur. You might not be so familiar with the work that the foundation is doing. So, James, can I ask you to kick off by telling us a little bit about the foundation and the work? That you're doing there and your role within that. So as you quite rightly said, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, we've been running for 10 years now, I guess really quickly as a potted history. We started back in 2010. We were founded by a lady called Ellen, Ellen MacArthur. Some people might be aware, Ellen used to be a professional round the world sailor, two world records under her belt. And it was actually in during Ellen's last round the world record attempt back in 2008, that this sort of journey began. And Ellen tells the story around Christmas Day, 2008. And Ellen was in the Southern Ocean, about 2,000 nautical miles away from the nearest habitable contact. And actually jokes at the time that the nearest human contact was the International Space Station above her. And nothing at that particular moment on Christmas Day in 2008 could have prepared Ellen for what it meant for resources to be finite. Because everything on that boat, all the food the fuel, the provisions that she had was all she had. She couldn't get any more. And she had to manage those provisions down to the last drop of fuel, the last morsel of food for the remaining part of her journey. It's like me asking you guys to go out into the world right now and get everything you need for the next three months and then manage that down to the last gram of material because there is no more. And over the remaining 30 days, until Ellen got back to terra firma, this idea of finite resource hadn't gone away. And I guess at that point, as you do, she started to connect it to our global economies, economies that are built off the process of, you know, fundamentally taking stuff out of the ground, which we know is finite, making stuff, and then at the end of its useful life, throwing it away. So we can have the latest version, the latest trend, the latest technology. The problem is by throwing it away, we lose all the, the labor, 
the energy, the material costs that have gone into making that product. And most of that material, if it doesn't end up in landfill or gets incinerated, ends up leaching into our environment. Stuff that none of us are really blind to these days. When Ellen got back after that three-month journey, she said this idea really hadn't gone away. In fact, it permeated even further. And she started to talk to CEOs, academics, economists around our global economies. And through the course of the next 18 months discussion, this idea of circular economy started to form. Potentially looking at doing things in a very different way, identifying the areas of our global economies that were restorative and regenerative rather than consumptive and extractive. So following those conversations in 2010, Ellen and four other people set up the Ellen MacArthur Foundation with the sole mission to accelerate a transition to a circular economy, to change the global economy. Fast forward 10 years, we went from five to now about 165 strong. We've got folks based in North and South America, across Europe, and just over a year ago, we opened an office in China, in Beijing. But throughout the entirety of the last 10 years, the mission has remained the same. How do we make sure that we start to work with the businesses, the governments and the cities, the academics, the emerging innovators, so the source of great disruptive technology, and everyone else in our global economies and the systems that we know to shift the way those global economies work in the future and so that they last and can be resilient for the future. That's a very kind of, I guess, roundabout way of saying what the, the foundation does. I could have just said we're, we're an economic think tank focusing on this concept of circular economy. But I think the origins of the journey is important to sort of picture where we've sort of come through over that journey. My role for the foundation is trying to understand what different organizations' aspirations are around circular economy and then helping them to connect with the different programs and platforms that the foundation has to help them accelerate their own transition. So you talked about that journey, which Ellen herself went on, which I think is inspirational, but also kind of one of those things that you try and imagine and think, wow, that's pretty exceptional. Have you got any advice for organisations who are setting out on this journey that are probably not quite in the same sort of situation? So someone that's possibly thinking, where do I start and how do I get involved either with the foundation or with sustainability as a whole? Yeah, it's a really good question. I guess, you know, very few of us have the opportunity to sail around the world and set a world record and have this kind of epiphany, this moment in time. But it is a question that I get asked quite a lot. Where do we start? What do we do first? For me, it's about trying to understand if you are an organisation, if you are an individual, you know, what is it you're trying to do? What is it that good looks like for you? Why is this important? And once you answer those questions, then build around you the right team to help you achieve that, but also then set your strategy and your direction of travel. But starting fundamentally with why are we doing this? What is it about this particular concept that makes sense and why we want to pursue it? Because otherwise, I think you can get stuck in the, well, we need to hire people with the right title. We need to be seen to be doing something. One of the challenges of potentially moving from a linear to circular business model or system, we've, we've had this linear economy for about two to 300 years over a couple of industrial revolutions. And it's worked pretty well for us on the whole. It's generated trillions of dollars. It's lifted millions of people out of poverty. It's connected us globally. But the problem comes with a linear economy. Well, there's a number of issues, really. Firstly, it doesn't make good use 
of the material that we have in our economy. If we think about that take, make, waste process, raw material, virgin material in the beginning, stuff made and then throw away at the end, that doesn't stand well for the test of time, especially when these materials that we, we start that process with are built on resources that are finite. Secondly, it's extremely wasteful as well. Like, you know, that continual throughput, that continued demand for new replacing old. We've normalized consumptive behavior over the last, probably the last 60 to 70 years through better and more imaginative marketing campaigns and making sure that people think that new things mean better. And then finally, it has this environmental impact. And none of us are blind to that fact. If that's, you know, plastics in the ocean, if it's degradation of farming land, if it's the inability to sequester and and capture CO2, global warming, climate change, biodiversity loss. I mean, the UN report last year around Climate Week estimated around 1 million species face extinction. Whether you believe all of the science or not, those figures are staggering. So this can't work as a method of growth in the long term. We need to rethink our global economies. Fundamentally, understand why this is important to you first. And once you have that hook, build your strategy and your capability and collaborate with others and be open source and mindful that actually you also can't solve this problem on your own be that in your own organization or within your industry or within your product type, you need to collaborate pre-competitively to shift the way your landscape operates. James, just listening to you, I mean, the scope of this is insane in a way, right? We're talking about reorganizing an economy, changing consumption patterns. It is a massive undertaking that obviously is going to have huge potential impacts for business and how it operates, not just from creation, but operation. Can you talk a little bit about the motivation for a business to do this from the perspective of making it more than just good PR, but actually driving this for actual meaningful change? And also in light of you're in competition with other businesses, right? So in a way, what's in it for the company in engaging in circular economy? You're right. It's a huge nebulous topic. If you start looking at circular economy at all the extremities of where you could shift or change or manipulate what you're doing right now, you'll just get lost in a sea of ideas and innovation. And it's one of those adages, is it better to to travel 10 miles in one direction or one mile in 10 directions? Well, ultimately, it depends what you're trying to achieve. But you're right. It's it's about identifying where are the short-term opportunities, what needs to change from a a system perspective for the midterm, and actually, what are the unintended consequences? One of the, the sort of comments I throw away quite often is systems change is complex. It's also complicated at times, but mostly it's complex. And to every complex challenge, there is always a simple solution, which is always wrong. For a complex challenge, you need a complex solution. And that takes time to understand. It takes time to understand, going back to what is what does good look like? What are you trying to change? What are you trying to do? And actually, when you pull lever A, how do levers B, D and F move in six months time? You know, what is the effort that you take today? How does that impact either negatively or positively what might happen further down the line? So when we look at what should organizations do? What should businesses do in that sort of vein? It's also saying there is a latency here around making the right decision. It's not necessarily taking action for action's sake. And this is where, to your point around PR or greenwashing, potentially that lends to our competitors are doing this. 
So we need to come out with a statement as well. We need to paint something green or we need to talk about green stuff or that sort of thing because our competitors are doing it. Actually, the heart of this has to be around the economics. When you take a circular economy framework, there are economic, social and environmental benefits. And all of those, depending on the industry, it moves between the levers of which of those are most important and which of those are most impactful. Over the last 10 years, the foundation has focused predominantly on the economic rationale of circular economy. Circular economy, the economies of what we're doing. Because we've all seen really great initiatives, really great projects that have been set up for the right reason. But unfortunately, when you're shifting from a 300-year-old linear system, you can't expect new models to have widespread uptake instantly. There needs to be a kind of blend. There needs to be a trend along that way. So by focusing on the economics of these opportunities, by looking at the greater level of consumer or customer engagement an organization can have through circular principles. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. By looking at how you can look for growth in flat markets through innovation and elimination of, of particular materials, by looking at how you can generate profit from new developed business models and new opportunities, resonates much better than the business, with the business community than if you go in and say, if you don't do this, bad things will happen. There's a whole spectrum there of what people put their stock in is what's most important. Whenever you take a circular economic lens, there are always the social and the environmental byproducts, which is great. But by focusing in originally on the economic rationale, it allows you to shift and engage with a system that has been used to generating growth by any means to drive profit. So there has to be a transitionary period in that. That's the trick, right? That's the magic about looking at doing the right thing but doing it in a way that generates growth and prosperity for everyone. Because we don't want this to be an anti-growth agenda. We need this to be an agenda that everybody can adopt, whether they are stuck in that previous mindset or whether they just want to change the, the fabric of the systems that they live in. Just to be completely honest, I think it ties in very nicely with concepts that we have all been discussing, if not for a very long time, then definitely very recently in that the importance here, and you're going to drive change through business if there's money on the table, and that a better business model is not one that is necessarily product focused, but it's customer focused. And that's where the value is going to come from. Everything that you've said connects to that beautifully and delivering it and the creativity comes in unlocking the business that delivers that value, not just the same old product 
more cheaply. Correct. And I would challenge that thinking a little bit, only to the point of kind of, again, back to this complexity of system change. When you look at different global markets, there are very much different levers and mechanisms that make this change happen quicker. And there's a couple of points I want to draw through here. But if we look just at the moment at the role of policy and the role of legislation, if we take a European context, and, and it's worth pointing out as well, right, a lot of people consider that Europe are leaders in the circular economic space. I mean, that's true as far as the fact that they've just been at the concept a bit longer. It's been kind of kicking around in Europe for, for sort of 10 to 15 years. So there's a maturity to the concept. If you flip over to North America, they probably only came to this conversation about four or five years ago. That doesn't mean that they're behind. It's just they haven't had the chance to mature the concept. But if you take the two geographies side by side and look at the job that policy does, in Europe, business has been crying out for the right legislative framework to allow them to shift the way they do their business models for a long time. And we saw with the, the EU Green Deal and the circular economy strategy that came out over the last couple of months, that was a long-standing ask from the business community. That wasn't necessarily about the European Commission saying, this is how things should be done now. It was a partnership of discussion to understand, right, we need to shift, but in order to do that, we need the right legislative framework. If you compare that with North America and the federated system, there's never going to be one centralized policy document that gives that enablement. So the drive is very much coming from the business community in North America. So I think there is sometimes it's that policy piece, it's that top down component. Sometimes it's the business agenda because they've spotted an opportunity. And sometimes absolutely it is the consumer and that these concepts of boycotting or boycotting, which drive change. And there's different mechanisms in different systems. I guess one of the things for us is about looking at how you engage with the largest protagonists within different industries. Because certainly when we look to unpick or undo two to 300 years worth of growth or two to 300 years of business as usual, the emphasis shouldn't necessarily then be on the individual consumer to change the way the system operates. It should be those folks who got us there in the first place. When we ask the question, you know, what can I do as an individual? You could flippantly say, well, not very much because there are only bad choices in a bad system. So, you know, whether you decide to say no to plastics or shift to a meat-free or meat-reduced diet or reduce your own individual impact from travel or CO2, if all three of us here did that for the rest of our lives, I would argue that would pale into insignificance if you shifted the way Coca-Cola operated by just 1%. So sometimes it's about leveraging the consumer demand. Sometimes it's about engaging with the protagonists within that system. And sometimes it's about creating the right conditions and the right policy to shift the way the system operates. And for me, that's just the beauty of this nebulous idea of circular economy. And to your point just now, Lupe, around the beauty of how do you identify what is the best thing to start on? And it's complex and it takes time. And that's why this space is really, really exciting for me. I love your point about the responsibility, if I'm sort of hearing you right, of organisations. Do you have examples of organisations who are doing this effectively, even if they're just starting their journey or those possibly more advanced? Who, in your opinion, should we be looking at to learn from? We work with a lot of organisations. And I think it's worth pointing out that none of those organisations are perfect. And none of those organisations will solve these challenges on their own. But the fact that they come to the table and say, we understand we need to do something differently, 
and we understand we need to operate differently in a pre-competitive way is the real joy of that conversation. And I'd say when businesses work with us at the foundation, they do it for a number of reasons. They do it because they want to do the right thing. They do it because they've spotted an opportunity or they do it because their competitors are doing it and they don't want to fall behind. I'm pretty you know, agnostic to whichever motivation there is. The fact that those folks sit around the table and are prepared to have open, transparent dialogues is really the key here. Because once they're in the conversation, you can shift and shape the way they think about the problem. In terms of organizations that are doing really great work, that's one of the really great things about the circular economic concept is that there are so many hotspots globally. The challenge is obviously always around connecting them across value chains, across supply chains, across borders. Those that I could talk about are those who we have as our strategic partners at the foundation. So the likes of H&M within fashion. Again, H&M, not perfect, but have come out over the last couple of years with some really bold agendas. We want to be 100% circular. We want to shift the way the fast fashion industry works. Looking at new disruptive models like rental, looking at take-back processes, which many of us will be aware of for a number of providers. Trying to do that very much at the heart of the challenges we see within the fashion industry. The huge volumes of fast fashion that get wasted every year. I think something like a bin lorry load of material is either landfilled or incinerated every minute. And all of that material has value, intrinsic fiscal value. You unlock the right business model and you can turn that material back into a value stream. So this is about looking to design out waste and pollution to make sure that there is no waste. There's only secondary resource. But you need to unlock the right business model to do that. Sticking on the fashion theme, Patagonia. Patagonia have done a really great job of generating a secondhand market, of coming out and saying, don't buy new items. Mend and make do. We'll give you repair guides. If you can't repair them, send them back and we'll repair them for you. But, you know, I'm working with the likes of eBay and Gumtree and platforms like that to generate a secondary market. They even launched a store that was designed predominantly around a secondhand market. So a bricks and mortar store that didn't sell new clothes, it sold pre-worn, pre-loved, pre-used, pre-adventured clothing. When you look in the FMCG community, again, not perfect, but Unilever, Danone, organizations that have been championing circular economy for many years across multiple product lines, they might not have been talking about it in the same sort of way, but of looking at how do they substitute out materials that can't be kept in circulation for ones that can or potentially ones that can be compostable or reusable or can be recycled and in doing so having to then work with all of the value chain across the producers and manufacturers of that packaging through to the post-consumer capture and then post-consumer recycling back into new products and new packaging. There are lots of organizations out there and the beauty of circular economy, and for us at the foundation, we don't own the concept, right? So this isn't about making sure people are using the right vernacular. It's actually about people making sure they're using the right processes to attack some of these challenges. So there are lots of examples out there where organizations have been doing this for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. They've not been calling it circular economy, but it adheres to the three principles of designing out waste, keeping materials and products in circulation and regenerating natural systems, regenerating natural capital. I'm just amazed at the examples that you share and how these businesses are adapting. Is this then the role of 
innovation driving sustainability or is this sustainability then driving innovation into the business? Who's winning more? I don't know if I've got a direct answer to that. I think it's probably a blend of both. Especially if you, you look at what the world has experienced over the last four to five months. And we've seen as we've got further through the COVID pandemic and as businesses have moved from potentially being on fire to now coming out the other side and thinking about how they demonstrate leadership and doing things differently. There's been a real shift around what's important for an organization. What we all, I guess, broadly now recognize, if we didn't before, is that business as usual is not going to cut it anymore. But there's a couple of complexities there because I would argue we don't know yet the long-term impact of what we've gone through as a global economy for the last five to six months. We don't know how long it's going to last. We don't know how deep that impact has been. And everyone has a very different relative journey of what's just happened. A lot of people at the moment are talking about resilience and that's good, right? You do want resilience within your business because you want your business to endure. But resilience also implies that we want to just do it in a way that means we keep doing what we did before. A lot of lessons we've seen, you know, and a lot of examples we've seen where businesses haven't survived or doing business as usual haven't survived may have been catalyzed by COVID, but actually were already industries and products and areas that were already in threat. This idea that we have to continue to consume. You look at the 2007-2008 economic recession. What we were told to get ourselves out of that was to spend more, buy more, consume more. There was no alternative given. So I think there is a real challenge around looking at a post-COVID world and looking at how we truly do things differently. Is it about being more sustainable? Is it about being more innovative? I'd argue you can't have one without the other. When you look at how do we shift and change what we do from what we did previously, it has to be around innovation of business models. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but where I am based on the Isle of Wight on the south coast of the UK, all of the restaurateurs and all of the food outlets had to pivot really quickly to home delivery as opposed to having customers come in. They did that because they needed to do that because the dynamic changed. But unless they did that, they wouldn't survive. So they had to innovate on the spot. They had to kind of throw caution to the wind. We've seen large international companies that have had to shift almost overnight, both in North America, across Europe and further afield, to shift their production and manufacture from making the items they made previously to making PPE. Historically, one of the challenges when you talk to organizations about doing things differently, you get met with the response, but it's too difficult. You know, we can't change our production. Yet when faced with someone like COVID, a lot of organizations, a lot of large organizations, automotive producers, manufacturers, pivoted their businesses overnight to meet the demand of the challenge of that time. So for me, for organizations now saying it's too difficult to change, it's too difficult to look things differently, doesn't hold as much water because we've seen they can do it. But again, you have to come back fundamentally to this element of what is the fiscal argument to what you do differently. You've been listening to Future Proof. For all episodes and more information, visit tantar.com or oxfordfutureofmarketing.com. Please leave us a rating and a review and subscribe within your podcast app so you know when new episodes are released. Thank you.